Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tulsa Lately, your favorite local podcast. Uh, this is, I just want to say from the get-go before I really get going, this is not a political show, but that does not exclude politics from the conversation either. So in light of the upcoming election day, I took the chance to sit down and chat with Libertarian candidate for Governor Chris Powell. And while he himself may not be a Tulsan, I say any state politician directly impacts Tulsa enough to warrant having an interview, whatever. It's my show. <laughs> and, and while this show um, officially endorses no political parties or candidates, I will say that on a personal level, I kind of like a lot of the things he says. Uh, his ideas aren't radical. He's not Ron Swanson trying to tear down government from the inside. He's just a sharp guy with a different approach to the problems Oklahoma is facing. Uh, that's my opinion anyway. I'll, uh, I'll let you decide. So without further ado. All right, so I'm here at the Tulsa Hardesty Library with Libertarian candidate for governor, Chris Powell. Chris, you want to say hi? Hello, everybody. I appreciate you listening. All right, so let's just jump right into it. Now, before we talk about policy and everything like that, I kind of wanted to know, I did a little reading, and I saw you have a background in the military and as a 911 dispatch. Is that correct? Yes. uh, I spent six years in the Marine Corps Reserve uh, in Oklahoma City. We got sent to the first Gulf War, and so I have that uh, combat experience on my record. And uh, I've been with the Oklahoma City Police Department for the past nine years, six years as a 911 dispatcher, and uh, since then I've been in the evidence management unit. Oh, cool. All right. Um, So how do you feel like, do you feel like that any of your experiences kind of led you into getting into, like what, what made you want to get into politics and be part of the Libertarian Party? Well, I blame my wife. Uh oh. So I was one of those people who would see things on TV about what was going on in politics or read them something in the paper and get mad about it and say they shouldn't do that. It should be this way. And my wife uh, got tired of that and said, you know, if you feel this strongly about it, you should go do something and get involved. And so uh, that was uh, about 1998 or so. And we went to a young Republicans meeting. And uh, I actually met a uh, mentor of mine, somebody that I respect a great deal uh, at that meeting. But I quickly discovered that these were not my people, uh, that they wanted to, there were too many areas where they would talk about limited government and then say, but we need to control this. We need to control that. So that didn't really work out. Uh, and then uh, I came across the presidential campaign of Harry Brown. And you know, I looked at that. There were some things that I was a little questionable about at first, but I thought it through. And it's, I, that's where I belonged. So I joined up. And in fact, I ran for state legislature in 2000. Uh, and I've run for office a few times since then, been the state chair, but uh, I've been uh, I've been proudly wearing the libertarian label ever since. Awesome. So um, you I, I read in another interview that you gave where you had a great quote that kind of made me chuckle and I'd like for you to expound on it a little bit. you you said, that the last administration has basically been asleep at the switch for the mm-hmm. past several years. 
So, you know, obviously that's referring to problems that Oklahoma has been dealing with. Now, would you like to expound on that a little bit? Talk about what you feel like the failings of, you know, Oklahoma's past have been? Well, you know, I say that about uh, the Fallon administration. Uh, I think it applies to the administration before that uh, to a certain extent as well. And it's basically just not minding the store, not paying attention to what's going on. You know, some of the the, the health department, the, the mess there, mm. uh, that's because nobody's been paying attention to what's been going on, and they've been able to do just whatever they wanted. Uh, and the now, would you like to expound a little bit on the health department oh, before yeah. you keep going? Uh, what do you mean by that? For anybody who's not not aware, they that is the agency that uh, back in the fall they indicated that they were going to run out of money, not be, even be able to make payroll, and they needed an emergency appropriation of thirty million dollars, which they received. They still laid off, oh, I think it's a couple hundred people uh, right before Christmas. And then months later, uh, I think it was uh, July or August this came out, they, it was discovered that they had the money that they didn't think they had. They just didn't know where it was. They managed just to lost miss... Lost the account password or something? I, like, I don't know. It's like your, your Bitcoin wallet, I guess. I don't understand. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, but they had been doing things like that um, for a a long time where they were hiding resources from uh, the state legislature uh, so that they could act as though they didn't have resources that they needed to get higher appropriations. Uh, Now, the director, and again, I I refer to the administration uh, uh, before Mary Fallon as well, because the director that was in charge there and the director at uh, Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services uh, and some of these other people were holdovers from the previous administration hmm. through the Fallon administration. Uh, these people had been there a, a long time. They had become uh, entrenched in the structure and just thought they could do whatever they wanted. Uh, and what they wanted to do was not in the best interest of the people of Oklahoma. So uh, I think what you, you know, it's an obligation of the governor to be watching out for the people and take a look at these state agencies, make sure the oversight is there. If there's a problem, the governor has the biggest voice in the state to shine a light on it. Hmm. Uh, And our governor didn't do any of that. Wow. Well, Um, so are there any other issues you want to touch on before we move on that you feel like? The last administration didn't handle correctly? Well... That just kind of forced you to talk about one for a bit. You can go on. <laughs> well, I, I, there's any number of things. Uh, governor Fallon does not have uh, among the lowest approval ratings of any governor in the nation for nothing. Uh, she's earned that. Uh, and uh, I think it is interesting to look at... Uh, she had a career where she was in the state legislature... Uh, you don't necessarily have to know how any how to do anything when you're in the legislature. You show up and and vote on stuff, and off, often you have a bunch of other people voting the same way to tell you which which button to push. Uh, then she was lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governor, that's a job where you don't do anything but campaign for for your next office. And uh, then she went to Congress for four years. Congress, you you don't have to know how to do anything there. And then she got elected governor. 
Mary Fallon's good at one thing. She's really good at fundraising, which is, of course, very mm. important in, uh, in politics. Uh, she's not real good at knowing how things work and understanding what to do or understanding where people are. Uh, I don't know how many times she said something that uh, has just made everybody mad, including her supporters, saying, why did you say that? So, um, you know, you put somebody like that in office and they're they're uh, they're going to have the kind of track record that Mary Fallon has. So. Uh Actually, the last episode of my podcast, I was talking to a lady that owns a restaurant that hires exclusively female cons, ex-cons. Mm-hmm. So that kind of got me into researching a little bit, and I, I dug something up. You know, I mean, I'm sure I've heard you talk about how we have the second highest prison population and or the second highest incarceration rate in America. It's the highest now. It is the highest officially. Woo-hoo! We're All number right. one. We're number one in something. Great. Uh, but the Oklahoma Department of Corrections released a statement earlier this year. I don't know if you're familiar. Maybe the listeners won't be either. Um, that they expect for the prison population to grow by 25% in 2020. That's that's how, you know. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, they have a $485 million budget right now. And they requested a $1.53 billion budget. So over a billion dollar increase. You know, all this in the midst of, like you were talking about, financial issues elsewhere and everything. What are what are your thoughts on the funding of the Department of Corrections? Kind of what, maybe what also you would want to do to change and better the Department of Corrections? Well, when, when Joe Albaugh asked for $1.5 billion, uh, I have a pretty high degree of confidence that for what he is being asked to do, that's not an unreasonable number. Okay. It is an unreasonable number as far as that's what state government wants to do and that's how much it costs. We have got to deal with this problem. It is a, uh, we are burning through human capital with everybody that we put into the prison system. That's the higher uh, education system of the criminal world. And we need to stop sending people through that to get these degrees in advanced criminology because they come back out and they are more dangerous than when they went in. Uh, so we ruin lives and we make ourselves less safe by having this, this massive amount of incarceration. We've got to uh, make state question 780 uh, as it applies to narcotics possession retroactive. We've got to deal with mandatory minimums that keep people in far longer than they need to be in most cases. Uh, when that was passed, it originally applied to what were called the seven deadly sins or the seven crimes. Now it's like 36. Wow. And because every time a politician wants to look tough on crime, they add they try to get another one added to the list. Uh, we also need to deal with, uh, we need to ha- fully fund things like drug courts and diversion programs that we've never fully funded. Uh, we need to deal with the fact that we pile so many fees on top of anyone who gets convicted of something on top of their sentence and their fines. Um, I'm all for people, uh, the people who get convicted uh, funding the criminal justice system, but we have a multitude of fines that are put on top of that and late fees and things like that. Uh, In addition to that, that makes it so that uh, it is exceedingly difficult to get out from under that. And then, of course, if you don't pay, well, they do. They pick you up. They put you back in the system, costing more money, 
being more expensive than if we didn't have the fines in the first place. There's a great documentary called uh, Dollars for Dimes that was done by Jennifer Reynolds uh, a year or two ago. Uh, anybody, uh, if you can look that up and find it, it, it really talks a lot about it. But we've got to we've got to keep people out of that system. It's 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 killing us. It's killing them. Uh, it's it's bad for everybody. And I'm, you know that's a little bit metaphorical to say killing, but only a little bit. Huh. Yeah, because uh, yeah, because and also with with what you're talking about with fees and everything. I mean, just just off the top of my head, I'm thinking that probably doesn't negatively affect middle upper middle class rich people even whenever they get in trouble i'm sure it's worse for the poor oh yeah the lower class and yeah that's, that's who's going to be affected the most by all those fees absolutely so that's that's great that's great so you can't have a conversation about oklahoma politics without talking about education mm-hmm. because you know we have a pretty bad education system right now <laughs> I, i'm trying to think of a better word but not that's about what i can think of so, you know, issues like uh, we, we can start with secondary school, see what you think about, you know, uh, teacher pay, you know, and the budgets for the education system and everything. So what, 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 are, what are just your thoughts on that? Maybe how to grow it and improve it moving forward? Well, when you look at Common Ed, I think there is certainly some validity to the, to the statements that, uh, uh, about funding. Uh, you know, you you can look at per capita and all that stuff, and you can you can see some issues there. But my opponents have both talked almost exclusively about funding and different ways to deal with that, uh, and that's missing the biggest part of the problem. Department the State Department of Education does a survey every year of former teachers. And if you look at the one that uh, they did back in January of this year, and you can find it on their website, you might have to look a little bit for it, uh, you will see that two-thirds of former teachers said that it would take more than pay to get them back in the classroom. Interesting. So if you think that funding is the sole issue, I'm just here to tell you you're wrong. We have got to put authority and responsibility back down at the local level, reduce political control of the ca- classroom from the capital, and increase authority in the classroom for teachers and respect in the community for teachers. If we don't do that, no amount of funding is ever going to fix it. Uh, if you're dissatisfied in your job, if you show up and you are, you know, feel disrespected and feel and powerless every day. Uh, you're just going to ask for more and more and more money to be paid to you to continue doing that job, and justifiably so. Uh, if it takes that much out of you, you should be justly, justly <laughs> compensated. But if we give teachers back some of the control, and that goes back to House Bill 1017 that was passed in 1990, which gets brought up a lot and it's brought up in terms of that they increase funding and decrease class sizes. And both of those were, were you know, there, there's nothing wrong with both of those things. Uh, but the two poison pills that were in House Bill 1017 was putting testing and curricula as a function of state government control. That's why we have these, this crazy testing regime that we have now that uh, teachers are teaching to the test and they hate it. Students are under this high pressure to learn 
what's going to be on the test. And that doesn't have anything to do with how successful you're going to be as a human being in life. It just doesn't. People who want to go on about standards and so on and so forth, education is an individual process. And we need to put it back to where it's being the decision makers are individuals who are involved in it, which is the student, the parent, and the teacher. Politicians and bureaucrats at the state capitol complex don't know your child and don't know what's best for your child. So you would say that a lot of the issues kind of lie in the overreach and administration and stuff like that. You would say that that's where most of the issues with our education system lie. Yeah, I mean it's with that makes sense. Yeah, it's people who are who are not right there on the ground floor of the education process being involved in it. Now, another thing that people like to talk a lot about is consolidation, and I am certainly not going to going to say that nothing should be done with that. Uh, it's certainly possible that we can experience some savings with some consolidation. I, I'm 100% against forcing districts to consolidate from the capital. Uh, let's put authority and responsibility in their hands and uh, see if any of them want to consolidate first. Uh, yeah, I, I, the, the more that they are on the hook for the decisions, the more they will make more sound decisions. Uh, the, uh, we can also look at some with administration across districts. Uh, we, we can certainly look at that. Uh, there's also the increase in the number of staff members and the number, the amount of services that schools provide outside of what's going on in the classroom that has increased over the, uh, you know, the, over the past 30 and 40 years. Uh, perhaps we should rethink some of that stuff. But the district that has the lowest amount of its budget per capita going to the classroom is Oklahoma City Public Schools, which is the largest district in the state. And everybody that lives in the Oklahoma City metro and that has kids, if they can move out, uh, across that d school district boundary line to get into another district, they do because the outcomes are terrible. It's a massive district. It's got over 40,000 students, about 41,000, and it's like the size of a congressional district. Hmm. How can you possibly serve the individual needs of students and, and really understand the individual communities in a district that big? You can't. They've got an organizational chart like a Fortune 500 company. Hmm. Uh, that's no way to run a schoolhouse. So, you know, that's an example where, uh, and again, it's not like they're saving money because they're not. Uh, that's a example where the opposite of consolidation is probably something that we really need to do. Hmm. I like it. I like it. So, uh, I mean, any thoughts on, you know, college versus technical college? I've heard you uh, make a couple statements about your support for things like Tulsa Tech and Votech and everything mm -hmm. like that. You want to kind of, you want to take a chance to maybe talk a minute or two about that? Well, this kind of pertains to um, common ed a lot, too. If you look at career tech, career tech does a lot to prepare people to go into the workforce, uh, jobs that we desperately need. We have across across the country, we have hundreds of thousands of jobs that baby boomers are retiring out of more and more every day uh, that are going unfilled because we haven't told anybody, hey, you might want to be a welder. You might want to be an electrician. You might want to learn how to be an auto mechanic. You might... 
these jobs that make our society run, that are uh, critically important, that we can't fill, uh, our career techs are trying to do that. Uh, they also don't have trouble paying instructors. They don't have trouble getting materials. They do all kinds of innovative programs for their communities. Uh, they, anybody who, who has uh, kids probably knows that uh, there's opportunities for them to get into programs during the summer in career tech. And they do all this with a much lower percentage of their budget coming from state appropriations than what our Common Ed gets. Interesting. I didn't know and that. And Common Ed is straight-jacketed with whatever the state tells them to do. Career tech, they have a lot more freedom to write their own ticket and serve their communities, and they do. So they get less money from the state, mm -hmm. and it costs less to go there. How <laughs> <laughs> uh, career tech is know. a great deal. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I'll say this, uh, uh, that that applies to our a lot of our regional colleges and community colleges as well. Sure. Because, again... They are on the hook to, to serve their communities. Uh, you can have a small college that, if it's not doing a good job, uh, that institution is going to suffer in a way that the people that work there feel it. So they have to do a good job. And you'll find a lot of great instructors at these, at these institutions. They're tapped into their community. They're tapped into the labor market to help people achieve what they want to achieve. Uh, and they're not, you know, they don't have a bunch of uh, a massive amount of political support in the legislature like our flagship institutions mm. do. We get a far better bang for our buck from these smaller local institutions than we do from uh, those those two places in uh, in Norman and Stillwater. Yeah, I could uh, I could say from personal experience, Tulsa Community College is pretty great. Uh, so I wanted to. Now let's talk about uh, let's talk about drugs. Now, if anyone knows about libertarians at all, we can probably guess your position on marijuana. You want to clarify that real quick? I do think it should be completely decriminalized, uh, one hundred percent, so that there's no legal sanction at all. It's it's a plant. Great. It should be should be treated the same as onions. Okay. But uh, let's talk about some more serious drugs because what you hear a lot about in the news and from mm -hmm. politicians is the opiate crisis. You mm -hmm. know, there's some, there's, there's, there, there is a rise of people dying of heroin and tainted mm -hmm. heroin, fentanyl and everything. And um, so what, what, are there any actions that you would think or any ways that, because libertarians often have an outside way of doing things. You're not about busting down people's doors to right. try to find the drug right. dealers and stuff. So what would be your ideas on how to handle that? Well, I think uh, implementation of 788 in a way that is going to ensure that uh, patients can have the access that they need is going to reduce the amount of people who are using opioids, uh, opiates uh, a great deal. Is that proven in any states that have done that already? Uh, it is. Uh, the other states have certainly experienced that kind of reduction in opiate use that have uh, enacted medical marijuana and uh, particularly those that have gone ahead with uh, recreational. So, you know, you're certainly dealing with the opiate crisis in a way that has been shown to be effective uh, by as much decriminalization of cannabis as you can get. Uh, but the the thing that we 
that I think is really critical to understand about a law enforcement approach to that issue. And we have uh, going into effect on November 1st, uh, I think it was, it was uh, 1446. I think it was a House bill, might have been a Senate bill. Uh, but it's making it so that doctors are, are less uh, able to or have more restrictions in uh, prescribing opiates to people. Okay. And what that's going to do is uh, it's going to reduce the number of prescriptions, but it's not necessarily going to reduce the number of people using opiates. It's going to change where they're getting it. Uh, and though it's going to form they get it in yeah. a pill form or a little baggie. Yeah. Uh, so you're pushing people into a black market. You're pushing people into a situation where they could get adulterated products or products where they're not sure of the dosage. And it's going to cause overdose deaths. This restriction on opiates being prescribed by doctors will cause op- uh, overdose deaths. That's just what's going to happen. It's how prohibition works. It's the wrong way to go about it. Addiction is a public health issue, not a criminal justice issue. Uh, and it goes back to the fact that we have the highest incarceration rate in the nation, that at this time when we have a crisis, and we know, we know that it's going to cause more deaths and we know that it is a failed policy. Our, our elected officials here in Oklahoma are choosing to follow that path again. Mm. Uh, so uh, we really need to roll that back, and we need to treat it as a, a public health issue. And you know, that's something that people just don't seem to get about prohibition is that uh, you know, if we if we punish people harder, they'll stop doing it. Well, that's never worked. Uh, the more illegal you make it the more you increase the economic incentive to put the most potency in the smallest package possible. And that's what's ha- what happened. We can see that with nearly every intoxicant that has ever been made illegal in anything. Uh, the example I like to use is uh, the liquor store. When you go into the liquor store, uh, what's the most potent thing there? Everclear? Yeah, and life tip, don't drink anything you can run your car on. Uh, but people don't, everybody who goes to the liquor store, you know, almost nobody's walking out of there with a bottle of Everclear because it's really strong and it's really powerful and it will really mess you up. And people don't want to get that messed up. They don't want to feel as bad as you feel when you consume Everclear. They go for much less harsher substances. But... When we had alcohol prohibition, you had people drinking stuff that would make you go blind because it was illegal and it incentivizes the most potency in the smallest package possible. So drug prohibition creates more problems than it solves. It's way too expensive. It fills our prisons and it exacerbates the problems that you have and causes more people to die. So we've got to stop trying to think that we can just outlaw substances enough that people won't do it and deal with it as a, as a public health crisis uh, and get some of these substances back to where they're relatively innocuous substances, much like your average bottle of wine is. So, you know, that's really the direction that we need to go. I like that a lot. I like the sound of that. Um, so... Speaking of getting into the public health issue, 
Do you feel like that there is anything that you would have the power to do to positively affect, you know, because also healthcare is expensive mm -hmm. nationwide, though. So how much control and influence do you feel like you as governor could have over maybe lowering the cost of healthcare in some way or, you know, helping with access for people who might not have access? What are, sure. what are some ideas that you've had? Well, as, uh, as the question presumes... Uh, there's a limited amount that can be done uh, at the state level as long as there is so much federal control of health care. And, of course, that's a insurance-based model that has been forced on us by what, uh, what's his name? Oh, I've lost his name now. He's a senator from Maine, George something or other. Uh, he uh, called it an accident of history. Uh, and basically what happened in World War II you had all of these businesses all the, that were producing for the war effort that needed labor and were, uh, they were competing with each other and raising uh, wages, and that was causing some economic problems. So you know, the government, with the amount of control that they had over everything at that time, uh, that was during rationing and everything, mm -hmm. uh, they froze wages. What they didn't freeze was benefits. So that's when you had all these companies. Yeah, that's when you had all these companies get into uh, offering benefits such as health care uh, to their employees. That's really where that took off. I mean, you had limit, uh, other examples of it, like, you know, in mining towns in particular, you had the, the, the company doctor and that kind of thing. But it really took off with that. And it went from there. Uh, and we expanded on it in the 60s with... Um, uh, you know, the Medicare and the Medicaid, and then in the 70s with HMOs and that kind of stuff. So we built on it from there, but that's really where it started. And what we have now is an insurance system where the provider, well, the way I like to explain it is if you had the kind of insurance for your car that you have for your health, if that car insurance paid for oil changes and uh, windshield wipers and you know, everything else, that, you know, tires, whenever you go to the shop and you'd go as often as you could, uh, and you'd get as much as you as you possibly could, you know, according to the policy. And the and the people at the shop would provide it to you because you'd be paying these outlandish rates. You'd want to get everything you could out of it. Uh, and of course, they make more money if they get it. And then they try to jack up the prices as much as they can for what they can get from the insurance companies. And the insurance company is always on the losing end because if they don't provide you something you want, you're going to complain because you're paying this ridiculous premium. So that's what we have with health insurance. And it just drives prices up and up and up. Uh, until we deal with the fact that we're using insurance inappropriately. Insurance is supposed to deal with risk. Hmm. You're at risk of getting cancer. You're at risk of having a wreck and wrapping your car around a telephone pole. Uh, those are health risks that exist. Maintenance costs, like checkups and a cold, and uh, you know, I, I fell and broke my arm. Those are routine costs. Uh, they are they sh should not be the prices that they are. They should be much lower because they're not risks. They're just things that happen to every, everyday people, and you should just pay for it as far as everyday routine maintenance of your body. Sure. Um, so the fact that we're using insurance incorrectly has caused all the problems that we have. And there's a limited amount we can do 
uh, about our state government. Some of the things that I want to do, though, are uh, increasing providers, uh, allowing nurse practitioners to have full practice authority. That's something that has been pushed in the legislature, but we haven't been able to get it. Uh, it hasn't been passed yet. We need to what pass you mean, that. Sorry, real quick. You mean like a nurse would be able to open their own... Well, we have well, nurse practitioners now. Okay. Uh, in fact, this morning I talked to uh, uh, a great nurse practitioner in Oilton who, uh, you know, she has our practice there, but she has to have a supervisory physician. Uh, that He's not there. Uh, he or she's not there. I don't know. Uh, they're not there. They're getting paid to be the supervisory physician, but they're not, they don't have any hands-on involvement in the way that she's treating and consulting with her patients. Okay. Um, it's just kind of a, this thing in the law uh, that makes it more difficult for us to have more nurse practitioners, particularly in rural areas. Uh, so we need to get rid of that and give them full practice authority. They have full practice authority in 22 other states. It mm. works. Oh, okay. Uh, it's so not, it's not like you're trying some crazy thing. It's, yeah. It's working in other places. Yeah. Okay. And it's not just any nurse. It's a particular, you know, nurse practitioners have more training than, uh, than other nurses. Uh, they have the qualifications to do this, um, but we don't let them. Hmm. Uh, anything that we can do to increase providers, looking at some of the licensing, finding things, finding requirements that we don't have to have, um, you know, so that we can increase providers. That's, um, you know, uh, and again, we want to, you know, we certainly don't want unqualified people to be doing stuff, but anything that's a requirement that doesn't have anything to do with their actual ability to serve people, we need to get those out of the way. We also need to protect things uh, like uh, free more free market uh, alternatives to the insurance system, like surgery centers of Oklahoma and direct primary care. Uh, those are both uh, models where it's cash based. Uh, so and like surgery centers of Oklahoma offers uh, a multitude of procedures that they can offer for a cash price that for many of them com uh, it's less than the deductible that you would have to pay for your insurance not even less than the procedure at the hospital less than the deductible yeah wow yeah so uh, you know and of course there's a lot of stuff that costs a lot more than sure. the deductible too but it's still pennies on the dollar compared to the insurance-based system at the hospital direct primary care is a subscription-based uh, system where you pay a monthly fee to a doctor who will see you just about as much as you want and they'll actually spend their time with you rather than tappity tap on the computer to fill out the insurance stuff and they can stock a, a large number of pharmaceuticals come pharmaceuticals that you can then purchase uh, as needed for close to their cost and again that you can have that high deductible insurance uh, for risk and have this for your routine care and save yourself money over trying to do it the way that the government thinks you ought to. All right. All right. Well, uh, one last kind of policy question. Um, so I've also seen you talk about Larry Sharp, uh, mm -hmm. candidate, libertarian candidate in New York. Now he has one of my favorite ideas that he has, fascinating idea, is that he wants to 
kind of get rid of tolls and because they have crazy tolls up there for anyone mm-hmm. that doesn't know you know 20 30 dollars for one way across the bridge often you know 100 bucks for a semi or something so he wants to get rid of tolls completely and lease out the rights to name the bridges to companies and then they will fund the care and stuff of the bridges and highways now do you think so it's just kind of an alternative way to raise funds sure. get corporations sure. to pay for public works and everything rather than you know, giving the working man a, uh, a a tax or whatever, which is basically what a toll is. So, um, do you think that something like that could work in Oklahoma, or do you have any other creative ways to raise funds without raising taxes? Well, that's certainly uh, an idea to think of. I mean, the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority is at least a quasi-private organization. We don't have the same accountability. Uh, and transparency, uh, not that we have a great deal of accountability and transparency with a lot of our state agencies, but we don't have the same level with the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority as we do with our state agencies. Mm. So, you know, they are able to do uh, some things without our knowledge that is effectively in our name because those are, you know, the the state has done a great deal to put those turnpikes in place. Uh, And... So, you know, certainly the idea of perhaps uh, privatizing the, that to a certain extent uh, to where it's not something that is consuming taxpayer dollars in the same way, uh, I would be willing to look at all options for that. Uh, the idea of having corporate branding on bridges, uh, if that's going to get us the funding to get to get better roads, I think a lot of Oklahomans would be interested in that because we have some serious issues with our roadways here. Uh, we have some of the worst bridges in America, don't we? I thought I'd read that somewhere. We're getting a little bit better, but yeah, okay. it was it was really it was really bad, and it's you know that hasn't been that long ago, so it's not that much better now. And of course, you know, if you drive any length of any distance in this state, you probably need a new pair of shocks. So <laughs> the. Uh, you know that's uh, and one thing that I have certainly said is that at the top of my audit list, everybody talks about audits. Uh, I think the real key is finding out what the priorities are with those audits. Top of my audit list is a performance audit of ODOT. Uh, we want we need to get in a position where we can maintain the roadways that we have uh, before we go adding a bunch of big, huge additional products. Uh, uh, projects that are going to add more miles to take care of when we can't take care of the miles that we already have. Uh, but yeah, if we could look at something like that to um, to help make sure that we have safe roadways that are going to be adequate for economic growth, yeah, there's no reason to not look at that. Sounds good to me. So now let's kind of get into... Uh, I'm going to throw out some of what I'm sure are your favorite words and phrases every libertarian candidate loves to hear. Uh, you're a spoiler. People are throwing their vote away voting for you. Like, what is what is the point? Why should someone vote libertarian? Well, let me tell you first off where I'm coming from. The uh, Libertarian Party was on the ballot in 2000, and then we were not on the ballot again until 2016. Uh, that's because we had one of the worst ballot access laws in the nation. Uh, that and you know, as much as I can 
criticize the legislature. I have to tip my hat to them on this. I really appreciate what was done with this. They uh, a series of reforms uh, in 2015, 2016, and 2017 have made it so that we are were able to get on the ballot, stay on the ballot, and are in a position now that as long as we make an effort, we can pretty much stay on the ballot as long as we want. So now we're in the game to compete and see how many votes we can get. Um, so going back to that period of time when we weren't on the ballot, I didn't mark ballots for governor in this state. We only had, well, in 2002, I probably did. Gary Richardson ran as an independent, and uh, if I remember correctly, I voted for him. But other than that, I didn't mark a ballot for, a, for anyone for governor. I didn't mark a ballot for anyone for president because both choices, and you only had two and you don't have write-ins, both choices were unacceptable. Unacceptable. So if there's unacceptable candidates, and I voted on other races, I voted on a lot of different things uh, uh, aside from that, but if there's not an acceptable candidate, don't vote for them. If you vote for somebody and they win, and then you've got some responsibility for what they do. Everybody who voted for Governor Fallon, your responsibility, you're responsible uh, to some degree for what she did. Everybody who voted for Brad Henry before that, you're responsible to some degree for what he did. Uh, you, you did it. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't cast a vote for those people. <laughs> so uh, you know, when you when you go telling me that I've got to vote for somebody else because they've got a, they've got a chance to win, no, I don't. Uh, and I'm somebody who, unlike. Mr. Stitt, who didn't vote in a gubernatorial primary until his name was on the ballot, you know, I'm somebody who shows up at the polls regularly, uh, and I've, uh, you know, so I, I, I don't have any patience for this argument that I've got to pick the winner. And it's not like you get a prize, um, you know, it, nobody gives you a reward for for having voted for the winner. Uh, so if they're both unacceptable, if they don't, if they're not representing what you want, then You've got to vote for what you re- actually want. That go- goes back to what what is the purpose of voting? Picking somebody who actually is going to hold the office is really a secondary consideration. When you go vote, you're trying to tell these politicians what it is that you want them to do. If you rig the game before we even start by voting for who you think has got a chance to win instead of voting for what you really want, well, you've, you've ruined the deal to begin with because they're never going to know what you really want them to do. Uh, you know, my whole, uh, uh, you know, the whole point of me running is to give people a, bunch, uh, a package of issues that I'm going to represent that I think are important and I think need to have power going forward. If you agree with those issues and you vote for me, then you're sending the message that that's what you want, regardless of who's elected. You're telling them, these are the things that I care about. This is what's important to me. And again, if you if you think that those issues are important and then you vote for somebody else because you're looking at, at, at polls, uh, bogus polls that are of older people who have still have landlines, uh, you know, if you're looking at that and making your decision about who to vote on for that, then you're silencing your own voice by not voting for what you really want. Great answer. 
Well, Chris, um, I feel like you have some amazing ideas. I feel like you have a deep passion for wanting to help Oklahomans and improve this state and everything. Um, I really appreciate you talking to me, and I, I wish you the best in uh, in the coming polls. What is it, November 6th, right? November 6th, early voting will start this coming Thursday and Friday and Saturday morning at your county election board. Uh, or you can go to your polling place on on the Tuesday following on the 6th. Uh, be sure and go and get your ballot. The top name, the very first one you'll see is Chris Powell. So remember that. You don't have to worry about any of the rest of it. Uh, <laughs> and um, I'd certainly appreciate every bit of support I can get. It's going to send the message that we want something different than what we've gotten from the two establishment parties. And let's say, I did mean to ask real quick. So let's say that someone is registered a Republican or a Democrat. Now, does does having registration as one of those things prevent them from voting for you at all? Just want to clarify that for everyone. On the general election ballot, you may vote for anybody who appears on on the ballot. Anybody who's looking at straight party voting, uh, make sure that you look at the individual state races. Uh, depending on what you vote, you could miss a bunch of races in that if you do the straight party voting. Okay. Uh, so you don't want to do that. Uh, but I will t- uh, suggest to anybody listening that if you want to change your registration, your party registration, you can do so online now. You can go to the state election board and find the link for that. Uh, so... If, uh, you know, I mean, if you want to be a registered Republican or registered Democrat, you know, that's your cross to bear. But if you want to get out from under that and join the Libertarians, you can do that as well. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been a real pleasure. I mean that sincerely. I appreciate it. Uh, And I appreciate the the questions and uh, the ability to talk about them. This has been a lot of fun. And that wraps up episode three of Tulsa Lately. Check out tomorrow for part two of the third party series. I had a candidate for state house request a chat and uh, being the young, eager interviewer that I am, I accepted. So it turned out to be a fun conversation. Uh, Being in a family of educators has given him some insightful perspectives into our education problems. So that'll be up tomorrow and an interview with someone from the Bridges Mercantile Mercantile in Jinx, another local business that is set on helping others and strengthening their community. So that about does it. Well, Tulsa, I'll see y'all around.